Good morning, people of Earth. It's me again. That voice in your ear. That guy who breathes heavy while going on morning walks. Hacker Mike. Coming at you from the cloudy, rainy, state of New Jersey, sandwiched between the river and the ocean, at the site where the Delaware Indians, <clears throat> native people, settled 20,000 years ago, and now they have the privilege of living in Kansas and running a casino. Ever wonder why there's Indians in Kansas? It's because they got kicked out of New Jersey by their friends. <clears throat> but they have a pretty cool casino out there in Topeka, the Prairie Band. And um, they sell cigarettes real cheap. They said to the white man, they said, you may have given us alcohol and taken our country, but we gave you cigarettes. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I have the most amazing um, podcast lined up for you. You know, we talk about memes. And the meme idea was uh, coined by Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. Well, this next podcast that I'm going to clip for you today is by a guy who has written another book. And he has gone deeper into the theories of memes and genes and natural selection and language and it's a real treat and this is actually a book I might even buy because this guy really nails it and listening to it with you and clipping it is actually a great great way for me to have a deeper understanding of something because by explaining it to someone else my understanding becomes much deeper. I interact with the media much more. So, these amazing pauses, that was also annoying when I was listening. It's like, why is he taking such long pauses? Well, that's the think cycle. Those are the, that's the space between the lines. You know, when you're reading a book, you got space between the lines. Well, these are my pauses. That gives you time to think and me time to think. And it just sets stuff up. You can also put, just put this thing on faster if you want it to be faster. You could speed up my voice. I guess I could just remove the pauses. And you know, someday, when artificial intelligence 
is more intelligent than a snail. You'll have the AI talking to you. You won't even need me. You'll just have the computer talking to you, telling you what's up. <clears throat> and the computer can take all this other information for you and condense it. But until then, until that day, where the computer can do all that for you, but just think what else it's going to do for you. <clears throat> if it can do all these good things, think about all the bad things it can do. And think about if it gets into the wrong hands. Like the person who wants to send you off to Kansas to live. Who decides that your home is now their backyard. What's going to happen then if they have the computer? Well, let's think about that. Because just checking my mic. All right, we got sound check. What if that's what's happening with this COVID? You know, what if the computers are the influencers and they're being run by someone who's not your friend, who's, who has an adverse agenda. It doesn't matter what it is. And we don't even need to go into conspiracy theories here. We just look at this power and we look at this influence and we see how Facebook and Google and Twitter are censoring. So I'm not actually getting censored on Twitter, but I'm definitely not getting a lot of traffic, let's put it that way. Like I am relegated to the total sidelines. Like nobody sees my tweets. <clears throat> and that's okay. Because I don't need the drama. If you listen to um, Joe Rogan's show, <clears throat> and he has 10 million listeners, I listened to Adam Curry's uh, breakdown of his interview there. And when you have 10 million listeners, you've got some crazy feedback. And people are going nuts. And you have some nutty people. And you're like the center of attention. I don't need to do that. This is my personal therapy session, you know? <clears throat> I don't need it to be a public thing. People who listen to this are my friends and people who I'm close to or have contact with. So this is kind of more like <clears throat> a less a less public thing. I mean, of course I have to watch what I say because I need to practice operational security at all times walking the streets at night it's five o'clock in the morning cloudy
but I've developed more confidence. Let me tell you that. I'm not as afraid of wandering the city and the streets at night. And I've really not seen too many people. But back to the point. We have this media that's being controlled by the computer, that's being controlled by companies that are somehow in collusion. If we look how people are being taken down at the same time all over the place, in a coordinated effort. And as I said, I think it's the government. But now, I'm going to say it's a tool. And this tool is weaponizing the lazy people. It's turning them into the neurons of the matrix. We are the brain cells, or the muscle cells, that do their bidding, that are hooked up to the Facebooks, and they influence that, they send a signal, and that body reacts. So just think about that. It's creating a new level, a new Herrschaft. A lordship, a superiority. It's like who's controlling the media? Who's controlling the message? And um, Yeah, I got a, there are going to be a couple of cars on this road, so I'll just pause when they drive by so you don't have to hear them that bad. I really should have a pause button. So, just think about it. So yesterday we listened to how Sweden has handled this thing, and basically Sweden is done with COVID, okay? Sweden is done with COVID because they went for herd immunity and achieved it. And they're back to normal, and they're not afraid. Now we have been dragging this out through quarantines. And every time we open up, it gets worse again, so to say. And um, it's just dragging out. It's going to drag out for a long time. So it seems to me that the only outcome, and as I said, my the people who I talk to, they're like, oh yeah. 
we're going to wait for the vaccine and then things are going to go back to normal. Well, that vaccine is totally experimental and it actually changes your DNA. So maybe that's the goal. Maybe that's the goal to finally force people into a situation where they're going to get genetically modified DNA. And imagine if they could have a chip to record that, like they're trying to do in, in Africa. I mean, just think about the censorship and control possibilities. And we see that as being done to people who are really have very little to say. Now, luckily in America, and not all my listeners are in America, but luckily in America, we do have something to say still. And as we learned, every single little freedom that we give up will never be given back. So it is our right, it's our duty to fight against this in every way we can. For the very simple point that we're going to fight for the freedoms of our children. And their children. And this is not about this one deal. You know, and if we have to die from COVID to protect them from <clears throat> having a tyranny of technology and genetic modification, well then that's something we have to do. But it turns out that this, um, this uh, virus is not as strong as it should be, it's not killing enough people to really justify things. So maybe it just needs to mutate. And then we'll look at round two. Luckily, I got Rona 21. I should make something with those websites, those domains. I hooked up my wife with Squarespace yesterday, and she's really, really happy with it. That's exactly what she wants in a website builder. And that's cool. So guys, that's it for me right now, my little introduction. I don't have too much else to say. We're going to get into some awesome clips soon. I think I might go to the gym, pump some iron. Now that it's open, I'm going to go every day at least and start working on building up my, um, my strength again because I was really up there. I could hardly push that sled uh, with um, eight times, so 400, or a little bit under 400 pounds. And I was up to like 600 before.
Mmm, that's good coffee. Yep. So we're going to uh, start our clips. And um, this is going to be a new format for a while. My introductory uh, rant. Get stuff off my chest. Then go into some uh, random clips. Now, we never finished up yesterday's um, podcast with that... Uh, that horrible audio and those two people talking seems to be nonsense about their ontology. But I started to read their book online, PatternsMeaning.com, I think, and I am going to uh, spend some more time researching it because I do want to um, see how our tax money is being spent. I mean, I'm not totally convinced of their arguments, and they're not really making a convincing argument. They're more... I mean, I'm gonna look at... They talk about UML as a language, and... Um, I'm gonna look at the parts that I know about and see if I can try and decipher what the hell they're going on about. But what I think they're talking about is they're saying that there's a transposition or connection between different multi, the different modes or media. Yeah, so we got modes and we got forms. So, but they're kind of talking about like the effects on masses, like the picture of Abu Ghraib. The picture is a thousand worth a thousand words, that type of thing. Well, we knew that. Pictures worth a thousand words. And um, the visual input system being higher bandwidth than the linear. Well, of course, words are words are uh, visual, but they lack they lack information. They lack the picture. So the, the, the interpretation of the words follows the visual, and the visual can give you a direct reaction where the words have to be interpreted. So it's a layer, a burden of interpretation on the written word versus the visual image. And they were saying that the picture fueled public outcry that the words never did. Well, you don't have to 
Like, who reads Red Cross reports? And who reads any reports? And the news is always full of horrible things. So, but you see a picture of something horrible, something obscene, something completely out of context. Well, that is something you can understand immediately. That shocks you. It hasn't... <clears throat> it's more motivating. So that fuels a meme much better. That's why memes are generally just pictures. And they're pictures of things that you know that are then twisted. With text. And very little text, that is. I'm talking about the internet memes. Not the meme memes. Okay, guys. Well, that's it for um, well, okay, let me just finish this thing. So basically, they're saying that there is a something that's being contained, some information, some facts that are being transported through different channels. They go into different parts of the brain. They have different uptakes and then they feed off of each other. See, that's where we have the creation of symbols or the, I guess you said transposition. So it comes in as a picture and you emit words. So you're describing it. Okay. And there's flows. So basically they're trying to just describe things and classify them. All right, we're gonna have to study this a little bit more. And I haven't even finished listening to all of it because it's so difficult to listen to. But we're gonna try again. But first today we're gonna listen to this, uh, this great new book. And uh, yeah, time for some weightlifting now. Okay, that was a short workout, but I'm going to do this every day and get back up to my strength. I need to start getting back into it, you know, so not taking it too much of the time. <clears throat> yeah, so we're going to queue up this first clip where he explains his theory that genes are text and that that text is written by survivors as a record of their surviving and passed on. Now, this is really an interesting idea because wouldn't the fables or songs that are passed along culturally also just be the records of surviving? And uh, the laws that are passed on are the records of what um what worked what the what the government could get away with basically it's a record of that and um 
So that's an interesting way of looking at it, and he's saying that the, the environment, or the world, is actually encoding this information. So the world is selecting uh, the survivors, and the world is basically recording. So if we just turn everything around, and we say, the world is evolving life, Right? The universe is evolving life, and it is selecting uh, the winners and writing down. It's allowing those winners to to continue to write down their changes, committing those changes by allowing them to reproduce and. To continue that the world is what's creating the selection process I don't know it's something to think about uh, I've never really looked at it from that perspective but uh, maybe I misunderstood it let's play this first clip mm, fantastic so I think an important basis of understanding here is about genes themselves how and why they function the way they do and how this relates to the evolution of organisms over time so can you explain this for the layman so the way that I think of a gene is um, genes are the archival record, the, part, the record of past natural selection. So genes code for proteins. They do things in the, um, in the cell and then in organisms. And then what they do is subject to the judgment of the environment. They either survive or they don't survive. And so over time, um, the genetic sequences that are passed from parent to offspring come to accumulate information about what functions and works in the environment. So the flow of information is from the environment into the genetic textual record of past natural selection. Yeah, so in this next short segment, he basically clarifies like how the proteins work and that the proteins do things in the world um, and that nature decides how fit they are and then those things are recorded in this text. That's basically what he just said before. Proteins, they do things in the... Um in the cell and then in organisms. And then what they do is subject to the judgment of the environment. They either survive or they don't survive. And so over time, um, the genetic sequences that are passed from parent to offspring come to accumulate information about what functions and works in the environment. So the flow of information is from the environment into the genetic textual record of past natural selection. Okay. So now he's going to say that the behavior of the beaver in creating the dam and the modification of its environment is part of a natural selection. It's part of its extended phenotype. And he goes into Dawkins and saying that his theory of the extended phenotype influenced him more than the selfish gene. Okay. 
So next you write about the impact and reception of Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, in the scientific community. So maybe tell us how this and Dawkins' other work influenced your thinking about genes. So um, many people have told me that the selfish gene changed their life. Life. It didn't change mine because much of uh, I, I read the selfish gene relatively um, late. What I did read during my PhD um, thesis time was um, Dawkins' second book, The Extended Phenotype, and that did have a, a very major effect on the way I looked at the world. I consider The Extended Phenotype to be a more radical book than The Selfish Gene. So The Selfish Gene looks at how um, individual organisms are um, performing behaviours that favour the propagation of their genes. In the extended phenotype, he starts breaking down the concept of the individual as a coherent whole, that there can be conflicts between different genes within the individual organism, and genes can reach out beyond the organism to have effects in the world, what Dawkins called the extended phenotype. The classic example is that um, beaver dams are part of the um, phenotype, the effects of beaver genes. And so the construction of beaver dams and those modifications of the environment is just as much part of natural selection as the modification of beaver teeth for chewing through bark and through, through wood. Hmm. Okay, so now he's going to talk about how the environment is writing information into our genes. And I think we're going to actually introduce our, some concepts from last yesterday's show, where <clears throat> they're talking about the transposition, and they're talking about the transposition of um, information between different f forms. They talk about writing and images and so forth and information traveling. Well, hey, did they forget about genes as a form of, of communication? You know, meat space. So we have a transposition to genes and to proteins. We have information traveling. So that's an interesting way to look at it. So he's going to talk about cows being domesticated, creating a symbiotic relationship with humans, and then our genes being modified because of this change in the environment. Well, what about the genes of the cows being modified due to their domestication or epigenomic selectors? But definitely the cows that are aggressive will be killed. The cows that are more docile will be bred. And the cows that produce more milk will be bred. And the humans who can consume that milk will be more dominant. So... What about the um, uh, 
about the uh, dominant people who control the the internet and control the media. Think about that. Oh, this is that an expression? Okay, so get back to this point. What I'm trying to say is that there's a transposition, but there's also a conversation. So not only are the genes being written, but the behavior, the actual behavior and the adaptation of domestication is causing is causing that. I mean, how did people actually get to the idea to drink the milk of the cow? I mean, you have this wild animal over there. I guess you would hunt it for food. Um, and then, I guess, you would keep the babies. Or maybe you would keep the mom after you killed off the bull to eat it. You keep the mom, the cow, and some babies. And uh, you might have to keep one cow and milk it for the other cows. I mean, they didn't have bottles. So eventually, someone got the idea to take the milk themselves. I mean, you gotta be pretty hungry to sit down with some calves and start sucking on a cow's tit, you know? Um, like, how did that at all occur? Like, what was the origin story of that? That's some pretty crazy shit. Um, well, whoever decided to domesticate these animals, and I guess this goes into the hunting of them first. I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna see that there's all types of interactions between, this is now my theory, the, the transpositions between what you see, what you do, and then how success is then written into genes and transported over time, or written into a song and transported over time, or behaviors that are copied over time, memes that survive as behavior. Anyway, but he's saying that the beavers' behavior is encoded in their genes. Okay, well, enough about me talking. Let's listen to him. So. There are a few classic examples of genetic effects. Um, one that's often used nowadays is to talk about the ability to digest milk as adults. Most mammals can only digest lactose, which is the sugar in milk, when they're infants and suckling at the breast. And then their gut ceases to produce that digestive enzyme as adults. And so for a large part of the human population, they don't produce the lactose-breaking down enzyme as adults, and so that they um, can't fully digest milk 
and so it becomes food for bacteria. One way to cope with that is to convert milk into yogurts and cheeses that break down the lactose. But in dairying populations throughout the world, they've, they've evolved a mutant enzyme, which is expressed in an adult and allows um, those adults then to digest milk. And so that's the origin of the milkshake, whatever. And so the ability to digest milk as adults is found in parts of Africa where they raise cattle in the Middle East and in particular in um, Europe um, where there was a strong dairy culture. So this is a very good example, actually, of the environment in which there are cows and there is cow's milk changing the genetic material within um, human inheritance. Other examples of simple examples of this kind are the disease. So now he's going to say that somehow mannerisms are encoded into genes. And that's an interesting theory that our behavior could in part be genetic and that somehow it expresses itself like the beaver dam. Well, what else do we got? Certain traits that runs in families Well, that's uh, something to consider, really. Interesting cases for which we don't fully know the genetic basis are all of those characters that run in families, uh, mannerisms and things of that sort that appear to be part of our inheritance. They're not learnt, and so I know of numbers of examples of um, relatives who've never grown up together and meet, are reunited at some time, finding all sorts of odd little mannerisms that they share in common. And so those, in some mysterious way, must be encoded in the genetic text. Okay, now this, this is where um, <clears throat> we get some kind of anthropomorphisms. So he's saying that that, that um, the genes have multiple meanings and they're in, interpreted on multiple levels, just like poetry, and they're passed down from generation to generation, like the epic poems from Homer. Now that's interesting. <clears throat> that is interesting. Um, so we're talking about recordings of recordings of um, successes and failures, information about the environment is being encoded and passed along over time or disseminated, okay? But I think his idea of the poem is really trying to anthropomorphize, he's trying to make it more like human. Um, it's an interesting idea though, but I think we have to also be careful with those things to make God to human-like, so to say. Nature, which is chaos or chaotic, it's too big to be understood. Um, it's, uh, 
infinite in its size and that we try to just make it more human-like. I think that is a dangerous, um, a dangerous path to go down because it might lead to oversimplification, but it's an interesting idea. So the gene code is like a, it's like a poem that is being uh, repeated by generations over time because it has multiple layers of interpretation. Well, let's think about that and listen to what he has to say. Well, the, the final metaphor of my book is that um, natural selection is a poet and means many things at once. The, um, the effects of genes are selected just like words in a poem are selected for, in terms of the, their effects on the whole, that they can be um, doing many different, a single word, can be having multiple meanings and doing very different um, things. And so that is the way that our, um, our genomes have evolved as sort of poems from the, the past. So now I skipped over some stuff. He's talking about Adam Smith. And we're not going to play the whole podcast. So if you want to listen to this whole thing, you know, see the show notes, you'll find a link. And um, <clears throat> I'll give you the guy's name. It is David Haig from Darwin to Derrida, self, Selfish Gene, Social Selves, and the Meaning of Life, MIT Press 2020. So basically, he's talking about um, Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand, how self-interest will lead to social behavior but um, he's also saying that this is the genes or societies or groups or things that work together the best Chaka would say they have the best leadership and that leadership is the um, Leadership is the uh, trait that makes the team good. So from a Jocko perspective, it would be the person who has the best leadership skills will be selected. And those leadership skills will create the best cooperation. But he's saying that the genes that express the best cooperation will be selected. So it depends on how you view things. but. point is that he's saying that cooperation leads to greater benefits for, in general, um, and greater survivability of the gene than individuality and selfishness. The um, problems with competition, and he looks at our moral sentiments as ways that allow us to um, live together and to um, cooperate. And I see the same sorts of um, problems arising in evolutionary biology, um, that there are short-term incentives for obtaining self selfish benefits, but the big um, untapped benefits out there are benefits of cooperation. 
And so part of the drama of evolutionary history is which species and lineages have been good at gaining the benefits of cooperation. Okay. So you consider... Now we are approaching some critical things. I really am enjoying this right now. So he talks about the genes as being instructions for constructing things. Okay. The genes are instructions for construction that are interpreted to create RNA. So if we look at what we have learned, what I have learned about neural networks, artificial neural networks now, the training is produces the behavior that's intended. Now, sometimes you can construct a network with a certain form that if placed in an environment, it will train towards a certain result. And you could evolve that basic structure to do that. So maybe the neurons or the brain functions are guided by the genes and how to generally form and how to generally train towards the goal of survival. And the construction of neural networks is given by those parameters. So it's like, okay, we'll create some networks like this and we're gonna train it for survival like that. So that's what the genes could be doing. They could also be doing more. But when we get into more specific information, like this move, this tactic, like military training, right? That's going to be training specific behaviors um, and creating specific neural networks or a specific, it's going to be exchanging much more precise information okay so when we get to the construction of symbols and the construction of concepts we are exchanging and transferring models that form neural networks or guide the creation of these neural networks. So philosophy, I think, can be seen as laying out blueprints for the construction of neural networks and the training of them, <clears throat> like the genes are doing, but in a faster uh, mode. And then when we get to artificial neural networks and deep learning, it's also even faster.
because the computer can learn faster than the human, supposedly. Maybe, maybe not. But eventually it might. Um, it's definitely more flexible. Like it can change quicker. Well, he kind of triggered me with that uh, construction of instructions for construction. I think that is a really good term that we're going to think about some more. And um, he also talks about non unintended information, which means that it has no intention. It's just information out there with no intent versus intended information that has an intent. And I guess poetry is then multi-intentional or well, he might go into that. Okay, enough of me blathering here, but I really, I, I really like this next clip. So you talk next about how the non-living world is a repository of unintended information useful for living interpreters, uh, which I think is kind of uh, going to your idea of the detective work there. So that characterizes our actions in the world as particular interpretations of that information. So maybe tell us more about what this means and how it can help answer the question of what genes mean in general. So... Um... I, I think that um, at one stage in the book, I say, I give, I say life is interpretation, um, that um, life is using information in choice, which is my definition of interpretation. So there are, there are genes which, if you like, are the specifications for producing organisms like you and me which are then interpreting the, the world around them. So the genes are a repository of information from the past, of what has worked in the past. Um, they're instructions for constructing um, bodies like you and I have. But then those bodies need to respond to unanticipated information from the environment and interpret that. And I see organisms is responding to um, two sorts of information. So one is, as you started the question with, unintended information from the environment. Um, the sun is shining or it's raining or um, there is um, food over, over the next hill. All sorts of information can be coming in of that sort. And it's unintended because it's just information um, that, is, that is out there to be interpreted. The second sort of information that we need to interpret are what I call texts. And a text is just an interpretation intended to be interpreted. So as I'm speaking to you, uh, this, is a, this is a text um, which I intend you to interpret in some particular um, way. So I see us dealing with those two kinds of information information from the environment, and then information from other organisms. And those other organisms often have an agenda. Um, they want us to interpret what they are telling us in particular sorts of ways. <clears throat> so now he goes to Derrida and how Derrida says that the text is constantly being interpreted. 
and that the information, um, the interpretation is guided not only by what is in the text, but what is not in the text. So, <clears throat> obviously, what's not in the text is the outside world. What's not in the text is the picture or the audio or the genes themselves. Unless, of course, it's the gene code, but it's not the gene itself. <clears throat> you know, I wonder if you could actually just take a description of a gene and actually sequence that gene. Like, create the gene from scratch. But uh, that's a different story. Um... So I can understand that. I actually haven't read Derrida, so we're going to have to actually do an episode on him soon, I think. Put that on the to-do list. All right, let's play this clip. I, I come to the context of um, thinking about the genome as a, as a textual record of past um, choices of nature. And then I just went to, to look at some of the works of... Um, and I found um, in, that he was talking about some of the same things as I was doing, but in very, very different, um, different language. So um, he, he uh, talks about how the meaning of a text is continually being uh, reinterpreted, um, that much of the, uh, the meaning is determined by what is not rather than what is sitting in the text. And that's very much similar to um, the process of natural selection, that, uh, that a DNA sequence gains meaning by all of the other sequences that were rejected by natural selection. So that um, it's, um, anyway, I, I see some analogies between the two ways of looking at the world that they um, develop um, in, in the book. Um, my Initial thought uh, was because um, Derrida talks, um, criticizes what he calls the metaphysics of presence. So he emphasizes um, the importance of what isn't there as much as what is there. And so I thought of calling the book from Darwin to Derrida, but never actually mentioning um, Derrida. But I decided that that would be a little too sophisticated. Uh, uh, That's a very subtle joke. Uh, well, yes, too, um, too, too subtle, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that is what I really appreciate about your book. So this last clip, he's going to address the anthropomorphism and say that he was taught not to do anthropomorphisms. But if you interpret things that are close to humans, then you have to treat them with a human perspective. And I understand that. I just think um, <clears throat> it would be better to say that the poem is like the gene as it tells a story, instead of saying the gene is like a poem. That would be a better expression if we say the Homer saga is like a genetic code where it passes down over time some ideas or some input 
or some uh, information captured from the environment, that would be a better a better way to do it. <clears throat> anyway, let's play this clip, and uh, I think we're going to close this thing up for today. Um, this has been a very interesting uh, show for me, and has opened up more doors and more areas of research. I hope you enjoyed it as well, and I hope you have a great day today. Um, I, th I think there are two takeaways uh, that, that I would like people to take from the book. One of them is internal to um, biology, and I, as a biology student, was told um, that I shouldn't use teleological language, you shouldn't use anthropomorphism. So the, the model of um, science is a, a model in which questions of meaning, intention and purpose are not part of um, science. And that works for um, the physical universe fairly well, but it definitely doesn't work for living things, which um, it's obvious as we look around are doing things for, for good reasons. So part of the book is a defense of the use of teleological language within biology. Um, you know, they, think about the criticism against anthropomorphism. Um, we, we as biologists are often told you should think about a dog as a machine and not think about it as being like a human being. But in fact, dogs and human beings are much more similar to each other because they share a lot of evolutionary history than they are to something like a traffic light or even the um, laptop computer we're communicating um, over. So I, I see... Um, so one of the things that I wanted for a scientific organism, um, not for, for a scientific audience to get out of the book, is a justification um, for taking um, purpose in the living world seriously. Another theme of the book for myself was um, so one projected title of the book before Darwin to Derrida was um, Degrees of Freedom. Unfortunately, it turned out that Daniel Dennett was thinking about writing a book of, called Degrees of Freedom, so I um, graciously said I would find a, a different um, title. And what I mean by Degrees of Freedom is that we have evolved to be free, to make choices in a world that has never been seen before. And so it's, it's arguing how um, free will um, can emerge out of a deterministic um, universe. So I'm a compatible, compatibilist on the um, question of free will, that um, we do things for um, physical, biological reasons, but we, it is at us ourselves who are making the decisions because we have evolved to be free. Wonderful.